When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. On the bonus episode front, we recently have a discussion of The Suicide Squad and a spoiler-filled talk about the finale of The White Lotus, and there's more good stuff on the way. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on our recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Taj Robinson. And Genevieve Kosky. Our regular co-host Scott Tobias is not with us tonight because he's currently on vacation. Also, we're recording on his birthday. Happy birthday, Scott. Everyone say happy birthday. Happy birthday, Scott. All happy right. birthday, Scott. But it'll be well past his birthday by the time he hears this. In Scott's stead, we recruited our friend and former neighbor, Joshua Rothkoff, to join us. Late of Time Out New York. You know his bylines from such outlets as Sight and Sound and The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Hey, everybody. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course. I was surprised it's taking us this long to have you on. I know. I've been waiting. I think it's because I left Chicago, but uh, yeah, I, maybe. I love it. I, I think that Scott should take more vacations, actually. <laughs> okay. well, maybe he won't be probably the last needs time that anyway. Yeah. All right. So for, the, for this week's pairing, we'll be discussing... Uh, 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 hold on a second. Uh, cut to camera two. Hold. Okay. Show me camera three. Okay, where was I? Uh, oh, yeah. For this week's pairing, we'll be discussing two experimental musicals made 40 years apart that connect with one another in some intriguing ways. First up, looks good. Uh, how's it sound on your end? Okay, let me talk to Colin before everyone's in position. Uh, first up. Keith, what are you doing? It sounds like you're taking drive-in orders. Yeah, You, you actually sound really tinny. <laughs> Tenny, you know, it's funny you should use that word. I'm coming to you this week from inside my deluxe Airstream trailer, where I'm simultaneously directing a movie. See, thanks to technological developments, filmmaking doesn't require me to be on set or talk directly to my cast members. I've got a bank of monitors, stacks of Betamax machines, a pile of floppy disks that are like this big, and a comm system that lets me talk to whoever I want to with the push of a button. It's great, and it saves so much time I can. Did you find Colin? Is he still in his trailer? Can you, can you, can you check? Okay, I can record a podcast and make a movie at the same time. Really? Are you sure about that? Sure. All without... Still no Colin? Okay, let me know when you find him. Um, all from... Colin's where? Tasha, I have to deal with something. What light into that? Can you tell us about this week's pairing? I feel like I'm leaving money on the table by not uh, freelancing at the same time, but all right. The hardship of making Apocalypse Now left director Francis Ford Coppola physically exhausted and mentally drained. It also almost bankrupted him. Coppola remained one step ahead of the creditors while making the movie and might have lost a fortune if it hadn't been a hit. But it was. 
Bullet dodged, Coppola decided to work on a small-scale project as far removed from Apocalypse Now as imaginable, a little musical love story. This eventually became One from the Heart, a mammoth undertaking that attempted to use new technology to combine the best elements of film, theater, and live television. This time, Coppola couldn't dodge the bullet, but while One from the Heart is a famous flop, it remains a singular accomplishment. Traces of it, from its stagecraft to its fractious central couple, can be found in Annette, the latest film from director Leos Carax. Working from a story and songs by Ron and Russell Mayle, who've recorded as the cult favorite band Sparks for decades, Carax spins A Tale of Love Gone Wrong, starring Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. Okay, if you can't find Colin, let's shoot Kirsten's scene, show me camera 14. We'll talk about both One from the Heart and Annette after the break. Did you make love to that guy? Of course I did. Was it passionate? Yes, very. You don't have to say very. You know, you could just say yes, but no, you gotta say very. It's neon and glitter. Let's run away from Las Vegas. Junkyards and paradise. To Bora Bora and other romantic places. Listen. Loneliness, laughter, and tears. Hey, come on home. Come on back, Freddy. This one's from home. It's heartache and happiness, music and fantasy, broken dreams and happy endings. I love her! This one's from the heart. Francis Ford Coppola presents a new kind of old-fashioned romance, one from the heart. For Hollywood, the 1970s didn't end on December 31st, 1979. They didn't end with the debuts of Jaws and Star Wars, films that redefined the blockbuster. They didn't even really end in November of 1980 when the delayed release of Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate helped confirm the era of studios backing the grand scale visions of ambitious directors was drawing to a close. The 1970s has become to be regarded as a kind of golden age for American filmmaking ended on January 15th. 1982, when director Francis Ford Coppola screened One from the Heart twice for crowds of 6,000 moviegoers at Radio City Music Hall. Eager to see a film that had already become an object of curiosity and suspicion, the crowds had waited in the cold, warmed only by the cups of split pea soup served up by Coppola's crew. This gala premiere wasn't part of the original plan. Coppola was feuding with Paramount. The studio had originally planned to distribute the film, but grew nervous after bad word of mouth leaked from screenings of unfinished prints for exhibitors. So Coppola took matters into his own hands, bringing the film directly to the public. But the public didn't know quite what they'd seen. A documentary included on a DVD version of the film released in 2003 includes vintage on-the-street interviews with moviegoers. One who calls the story, quote, banal and very boring, and another who likened it to a meal made up entirely of desserts who added that after a while you start to feel a little sick. It also features a contentious between-screenings press conference, which Coppola seemingly can't believe audiences didn't love the movie as he'd expected, and admits that the future of his Zoetrope Studios depended on its success. What's more, Coppola loved the film. It was, as its title claimed, One from the Heart. It's impossible to talk about One from the Heart without discussing the circumstances surrounding its creation. Sorry, Scott, who's not, not here to complain about extra textuals. Uh, but the discussion mm -hmm. shouldn't end with the circumstances surrounding its creation. But let's get into them anyway. In brief, Coppola was in, in the midst of attempting to fulfill a lifelong dream. He'd bought a down-on-its-luck Hollywood studio 
and was in the process of turning it into his vision of how movies should be made, an all-in-one facility that would use state-of-the-art equipment to make movies. That included directing from a command center built into a trailer and using video footage as a kind of living storyboard and editing the film while still in progress. Variations on these techniques are in use today. Coppola even called it pre-visualization. But at the turn of the 80s, it was akin to trying to reach the moon with a hot air balloon. Coppola's vision went beyond making one film. It was utopian. There would be a repertory company and an apprentice program. A four-day work week would allow employees to use a fifth day to pursue whatever projects they wanted. It was the old studio system remade for a new era and better. It was the future. But the future didn't have enough money to fund it. And it depended on one from the heart winning over audiences. That didn't work out either, but the experiment left still left behind a singular film, a musical set in a backlot recreation of Las Vegas. Frederick Forrest and Terry Garr co-star as, respectively, Hank and Franny, a pair of lovers with different visions of their life together. In an opening inspired by O. Henry, she's bought tickets to Bora Bora, and he's bought the house in which they live. They separate, commiserate with best friends played by Lady Kazan and Harry Dean Stanton, meet new lovers in the form of Raul Julia and Natasha Kinski, and then they reunite. That may sound like a spoiler, but One from the Heart never really builds up enough of a head of narrative steam to make words like spoiler really apply. What it does offer, however, is a series of neon-lit images of the sort that had never been seen before and would never really be seen again. To the accompaniment of Tom Waits' songs performed by Waits and Crystal Gale, Hank and Franny stumble through the streets of Las Vegas, a picturesque dump, a high-rise apartment, and a full-scale recreation of the Las Vegas airport complete with a plane. The film bursts with inventiveness, as if Coppola is trying to bring a new idea to each frame, whether bringing lovers and would-be lovers together by compositing two different shots, playing with scale and bursts of light, or nodding to the artificiality of it all. An early shot, for instance, features Franny arranging miniatures in the window of a travel agency. It's a set within a set, all of it made luminous by the lights of an unreal Las Vegas. Is all that creativity enough to sustain a future-length running time? Or is it really a meal of desserts? Is it all a folly? If nothing else, one from the heart deserved not to be forgotten or to become a shorthand for flop in the years between Heaven's Gate and Howard the Duck. Coppola staked it all in this gamble and lost it all in the process. He spent the rest of the decade taking on studio projects to repay his debt. But while the gamble didn't pay off, maybe it's apt that a film about beautiful losers would become, for those who appreciate what it has to offer, the embodiment of the same. I know she ain't gonna come. <laughs> you like this hair? I don't know. It wasn't my idea. I didn't know. You know, the guy said this is what to wear nowadays. It's very in. Little boy blue can blow your heart. The dish run away with a spoon. Home again, home again, Saturday morning. And never gets up before noon. She used to render you legal and tender When you used to send her your promises, boy A dollar, a dollar, unbutton your collar And come out and holler out all of your noise <laughs> All right, so let's talk about One from the Heart. We Traditionally, uh, Josh, we kind of go through everyone's history with this film. So let's just start with you. What, sure. What's your history with this film? I'm a proud uh, Gen Xer. I own that. I really have no choice at this point in my life. <laughs> and I, I never really understood people in my generation who would say things like, 
I saw The Godfather when I was four years old, or I saw Jaws or The Exorcist when I was three years old. And I'm like, are you insane? Were your parents insane? And what could you have possibly gleaned from that experience, even if it was true? I think they're lying. If I was being completely honest with you guys, I started going to the movies in the early 80s. And by that, I mean, I started sneaking into R-rated movies at that time. (laughs) You know, your mom's dropping you off at the mall and you're telling her you're seeing Ghostbusters, but you're really sneaking in to see Purple Rain or Bachelor Party, whatever it was. And so it's undoubtedly the case that One from the Heart was the first Coppola film I saw. Mm. And then I went backwards when I could understand a film like The Conversation or Pop-Ups Now or whatever. And I mean, to be completely honest, I <laughs> hated it at the time. I was I was at a, a 11 or 12 years old. It didn't speak to me at the time. I also didn't have the context at the time to appreciate how much of a tumble it was after his masterpieces had come from the 70s. So it was a it was kind of an adventurous day at the movies and sort of a I don't know I feel like I'm talking too much. What is your history with this film? <laughs> I, I'm just trying to picture you know little Josh. This film, yeah, but. I mean I I do not judge an 11 year old boy for not connecting to this film when he saw it. So. I don't judge a 50 year old man for not connecting to this film. <laughs> right, <time>. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just so delighted by the image of a little kid getting away with something by sneaking into a movie that has uh, naked boobs in it and adult situations and, and for the time, kind of graphic sexual stuff and still being stuck with this <laughs> I know, right? It, it's kind of like when, when Millhouse and the, and, was, and the boys go, go see Naked Lunch, right? Right. Oh, naked it's, Lunch, it's, it's yeah, exactly. It's a complete exactly. crapshoot and, and it, it's the same thing with like the Bond films. Like everyone talks about seeing Goldfinger or, or Spy Who Loved Me. I think the first Bond film I was very excited excited to sneak into was Octopussy. And imagine if that's your first Bond film and you're like, oh my God, these are terrible, these movies. I'm bonded for life to Octopussy for just that reason. (laughs) (laughs) What what are adults getting out of this? Why are they watching these films? So Josh, though, but it sounds like you have revisited the film since then. Has your uh, perspective or opinion on it shifted? It it, it has. And I I feel like it's because my, uh, my appreciation for Francis Coppola's work has uh, obviously gotten a little more robust since since I was a 12-year-old. But um, I find it a very sweet film and also kind of a... It's a film that I want to give a great big hug to because it's such a, <laughs> an obvious failure. And I remember um, the more I learned about the movie brats and those directors, they would always talk about how much they love musicals. It was either like The Red Shoes This or Vincenti Minnelli That or you know Fred Astaire musicals. But when they finally got the opportunity to make their musicals, they were terrible. It's like, you know, Robert Altman (laughs) making Popeye and and Scorsese making uh, New York, New York, and then Coppola making this movie. And it was almost, there was something that was kind of tragic and Hindenburg-esque about it. And and like, this was what he spent a lot of his political capital after Apocalypse Now, which itself was a dare. So I love the riskiness of it. And I love how very different it is from the majority of his movies thematically as well. So I've come to appreciate it as an outlier. Actually, it's funny with the movie brats. The one, the one exception that maybe proves that rule, I think, is Brian De Palma, who made a great musical early in his career with uh, Phantom of the Paradise. And then eventually, uh, I think he understood technique and form even maybe a little bit better than Scorsese and Coppola and Altman. When they made their musicals, they were just disasters, <laughs> lovable disasters. I guess I'll go next because I'm 
at kind of the exact opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, this was my first time seeing this film. I went into it with a good bit of knowledge of the context around it as far as, as Coppola's career, but I hadn't seen it. I've never really been a, a completist uh, when it comes to, to auteurs. I just like kind of see the films as, as they come to me. So I uh, finally got around to this one. And, you know, I'm, I'm not really going to, I think, say anything that hasn't already been, been said about this film, but... Uh, uh, I guess maybe like to put it the way that, you know, maybe one of the male characters in this film might describe one of the female characters. It's lucky it's pretty, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a very nice film to look at. I was always visually engaged with this film and I was, you know, to an extent engaged with the characters, uh, pretty much Terry Gar, <laughs> and just because mm-hmm. I think it, it's clearly the standout performance and Raul Julia. I mean, he's he's Raul Julia, but he like the character is kind of a a nothing. You know, all of these characters are very minimally conceived, you know, and the, that extends to the romance at its center. So it is hard, I think, to you know, feel engaged with the narrative of this film. And, you know, I don't think any romance should end with a reconciliation that makes you go, no, why? (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But that said, I I actually think it was... uh, Maybe just when you're talking about uh, Excalibur, maybe as Tasha that described it as, as like the weather. If you don't like what's happening on screen, just wait a few minutes and it'll change. Kind of this, kind of the same thing here. Um, but or and, or in the case of this film, the airlessness of it. That's yeah. the one thing that I can't like. I I love like you're saying how beautiful it is visually, but it's so weird that they're outside, quote unquote, but there's no wind. Right. It's like, actually mm. yeah, actually maybe sort of a better metaphor is like wandering around an art gallery or something because right. you can just kind of like, like move. From from nice visual to nice visual, and it's a very surfacey, I think, enjoyment that you can get out of this film. But it's also at the same time frustrating that you can't really get beyond that surface enjoyment. At least I couldn't. Yeah. I, I would yeah. love to hear if Keith or Tasha feel differently. Yeah, I'm afraid not. I, this is also <laughs> my first time seeing this film. I hadn't even heard of it when we mm. first brought it up as a, an option. I really enjoy musicals, especially kind of classic Hollywood musicals, but I am far from a completist on them. I don't do a lot of work to chase them down because I've kind of hit that point where I've seen all of the, the ones that are considered truly great. And so every every new old musical I watch kind of has a, a quality of at best interesting failure mm-hmm. or memorable set piece or great also ran or one one memorable performance, that kind of thing. And this was uh, when it started up, I kind of had a moment of like, wait, am I am I about to be pulled into something phenomenal that I've just missed out (laughs) on all this time? And and then the love story. (laughs) I think this movie is absolutely fascinating in contrast with Annette in a way that it's not entirely on its own. I mean, the the story Mm. behind it's making the story behind the technology that he was using, the experiments that he was doing, I think are really interesting. And of course, there's always something on screen. I, I actually really like the garish artificiality of it. You know, it, it basically starts with animation, more or less. It's, uh, you know, drawing the the city of Las Vegas as if it's something out of a, an old, like, Tex Avery cartoon, almost. And then going into these, like, spangly neon settings full of, like, archived detritus of, of Vegas landscapes. The little inset uh, window that, that she makes over as, like, a new city every now and then. All of these little fakeries that kind of emphasize how fake Vegas is, 
But at the same time, there's no cynicism of, about Vegas in this movie. You know, we, we've come to see it in movies in particular as this kind of aggressive monster of a town that'll chew on you and suck you dry. But here it's just like this candy colored, like lit up wonderland where, <laughs> where, where people, people just dance yeah, in the streets. Like, yeah. like it's, it's the <laughs> same uh, kind of city that we see Los Angeles as in La La Land. It's this wonderful setting. It's this wonderful visualization. And then in the background, you have Tom Waits just kind of purring the way he does and Crystal Gale kind of soaring over it all. What a strange pairing. What strange <laughs> and simultaneously like unmemorable is not going to get stuck in your head music that's also just kind yeah. of like haunting and gives you a, a texture that you just don't get out of other musicals, all of these great elements. And then these nothing characters in the middle of it with the actors trying so hard to make them into something characters. What a strange phenomenon this movie is. I feel like you just nailed one word particularly that I feel when you said uh, cynical. I think you were talking about how this movie is completely uncynical. And I think that that's what makes it so very uncopla in a way for me. When I returned to the movies he made before One to the Heart, when I learned about them, they're all marked by a strong sense of cynicism coupled with family and community, even though soldiers on the boat in Apocalypse Now are kind of a family, a squad. And when you, when you consider a movie like The Conversation, that's also about someone who can't connect with others. So it's like that essential couple of theme of family and inverse. That's what makes it a tragedy and a masterpiece. Whereas this film, there's no family, there's no sense of community, and there's and there's no cynicism marking it. It's, it's almost like uh, one couple goes on an experiment one night, and eventually they come back together. And there's none of the film is marked by Coppola's typical sense of either honor or betrayal or cynicism, which is what I think makes it strange. Yeah, I mean, it's trying to capture the spirit, I think, of a classic musical and the sort of like the G wizardry, like sort of these big, these big characters you, you root for and then, and love that's, that's, that, you know, has its, has its sort of like, you know, roadblocks, but, you know, ultimately it's going, going to triumph over everything else. And it's just off in a way. I mean, I'm really deeply fond of this horribly flawed movie <laughs> I, I it is impossible i mean i guess it's possible anything is possible but it's really hard to mount a defense of this as a successful film but there's elements in it that, that i just i love like that moment when uh franny is is creating the miniature in the window and raul julia walks up i think for the first time mm -hmm. and there's like sort of like rainbow effect of the lights lighting up your, your breath just catches. I mean, it just is a stunning piece of filmmaking. And there's all the stuff throughout the movie that's just it's like, you know, I'll, I get frustrated. And there's, there's this astonishing visual that kind of like, okay, I forgive you movie for, for, yeah. for what you just put me through because this is amazing. And I actually do really, I, I like the songs a lot. I think it's a, it's a, it's a score I will listen to apart from this film on occasion. Um, but you can't hum them. You can't hum a single melody. From this well, film. can you hum any Tom Waits? Oh, yeah. Songs? Don't, don't <laughs> yeah. make me break sure. it. Yeah. Or or any, there are, I think that that's also um, an important, maybe a bedrock thing about musicals that Coppola wasn't quite prepared to engage mm -hmm. with is that mm -hmm. they all have such great songs. They start with melodies. I like, for example, like Singing in the Rain, that, that song, not even the movie. That song could conceivably exist without the movie. It's such a great and, song, and did. right? I mean, it was, and you did. know, it's, yeah. So, so the idea that, that, uh, they had that Waits and, and Crystal Gale made this kind of impressionistic, vaporous score that kind of insinuates itself, but really doesn't have anything 
hummable or memorable to it or mem- there's no there's no melody I, I mean keith correct me if i'm wrong because you say you, you rock out to this at, by yourself at home but are <laughs> there songs that you could sing along to in this because i i didn't i can't No, but if i'm putting together a playlist and I, you know i want to throw something like i could throw something like broken bicycles on there and it's a nice it's a mood for for those three minutes that, that i mm-hmm. that I, enjoy, I enjoy you know and and i'll listen to the soundtrack but no you're right i mean you know is, is this is this a uh, uh rogers and hammerstein <laughs> worthy yeah. score where but even once, if you're, once heard it's never yeah. forgotten even uh, even if you're no. talking about like modern musicals like let's say something like dancer in the dark i yeah. think the strength of those songs helps lars von trier to be very experimental and i can i can hum several of those songs but it's almost like the conventionality of the score and and the melodies gives you the the ability to, to go more daring i don't think that he had that crutch it probably would have helped well i think there's also one th- one thing and this is kind of moving on to another topic but one thing i want to talk about is like in some way, it's a baffling choice to do a musical in which all the music is performed not by the characters, not even right. by anyone right. on screen. I actually kind of have trouble even considering this a musical um, mm. because of the way that the music works in it. Because and there are you know exceptions here or there, but for the most part, I think of a musical as where the characters are compelled to burst into song because it's the only way to express what is happening to them or what they're feeling in that moment. So by having the the songs not only relegated to the background and the characters not singing them, but also having the songs not really be that connected to what the characters are experiencing in, in the moment, it feels just sort of like you know, non-diagetic music. Um, I, I, you know. How certain of you are that, though? I, I, I had the mm-hmm. subtitles on because that's my mm-hmm. kind of modus operandi. It seemed an awful lot of of Waits in particular was talking directly to Hank about what he's yeah. feeling in any given moment. Right. And, th- and that's a, a valid argument. And I think Waits is in particular sort of a a Hank surrogate. I don't think that Crystal Gale is necessarily a Franny surrogate uh, in terms of of the songs, but it almost pulls it off at the end with Hank's whole, you know, I don't sing, I don't sing, I don't sing. And then he sings this terrible version of You Are My Sunshine. And so like the, the conception of this as a musical, like kind of gels a little bit in that moment, but I'm still just kind of resistant to thinking of this as a musical. And so this circles back to what we were saying about, you know, this being a not very cynical film, which I agree that for Coppola it isn't, but I do think we have sort of a point of cynicism in the film, and that is Hank. You know, he's a really dissatisfied grump of a character you know he talks about how america is is phony you know nothing's real it's all tinsel and you know like he's resisting the american dream but at the same time like doesn't have a better idea so he's like buying this crappy fixer up of a house just because like, he doesn't know what else to do you know i think there is a deep strain of cynicism in that character but it doesn't manifest anywhere else in the film arguably maybe in in tom waits's just kind of voice and demeanor but in terms of like the style of the film it doesn't mesh with hank as a person as we've as we've been shown him so i think maybe that's why that character in particular i think just kind of sticks out like a sore thumb in this film for me i don't know if anyone else feels that way I mean, I definitely think he sticks out like a sore thumb. And one of the reasons is, I mean, this is this is hard to say because we don't like commenting on actors' appearance so much, but he is an unattractive man. 
he is he is wearing the most unflattering haircut I think I've ever seen in a movie. And uh, like I've I've seen No Country for Old Men multiple times. Like <laughs> his haircut is terrible for for his face. He looks like we were talking a little bit beforehand, and Joshua was talking about how. Coppola deliberately uh, wanted to direct him like he's some sort of ape, wanted to wanted him to basically be the Stanley Kowalski character, right. the the kind of like dull, heavy. And his his haircut and his face mirror that he looks not particularly bright most of the time. His emotions are very blunt and belligerent. Uh, when he's arguing with Franny, just over and over and over, she she keeps saying, I don't want to argue. And he'll say, we're not arguing. And then he'll yell at her. He's physically controlling in a very disturbing way. He's just in a genre that's uh, essentially about pretty, pretty pictures and pretty people in a movie where everything is lavish and gorgeous and luscious he sticks out like a sore thumb because he's he's kind of an ape like in yeah. his behavior but also just in his looks an ape and also a gaslighter like you it's hard to have a have a movie centered around a character that uh, is basically denying the way that his wife is feeling like that's that's a that was sort of a deal i watched i returned to one from the heart to prepare for this podcast and watched it with my wife the first time and and she was like really found him detestable like hmm. had a hard time entering into the film and also i mean not to divert too quickly away from this idea of frederick forrest and i can't even imagine apocalypse now without him by the way he's capable of making great characters sing and when he's talking about mangoes and don't get off the boat he's really wonderful in that film but is it so gorgeous this film is i mean i feel like Sometimes the, you know, Storaro, Vittorio Storaro, the cinematographer, sometimes he's making the images look very garish mm. and sometimes he's making them look beautiful. But I don't know if there's like a, a unifying an aesthetic throughout his cinematography. Sometimes I feel like it's making an easy point about the plasticity and this, you know, Vegas is this kind of trashy town. And sometimes I think Coppola's pushing it into kind of like a bloomed out gorgeousness kind of like what Serrara would do with his work with Bertolucci. But I don't know if it, I don't know if this is all unified into sort of a, an aesthetic that, or, or, or even a point of view. I mean, do you guys, were you watching this movie and saying, Oh, it's so beautiful. I, I was, but I mean, I feel <laughs> like the, the beauty kind of comes from like the aesthetic kind of comes from separating interior spaces and exterior spaces. And these exterior spaces, like the, uh, the, the trash dump that just happens to be full of, of giant, ridiculous neon signs, uh, presumably mm -hmm. discarded from the casinos and stacked up cars that play a sort of horn kind of music. Mm -hmm. Like all of that feels very MGM musical fantastical. It doesn't feel like it enters into the realm of the, the real the interior of their house on the other hand feels very real the interior of even the the hotel room where franny ends up with her her lover briefly has a very real feel to it it, it just feels like indoor spaces here are away from the vegas fantasy away from the unreality mm -hmm. that all of these lights and just kind of like the candy colored settings the candy colored backgrounds uh, have and in what I think is one of the movie's most memorable sequences, when the uh, when Raul Julia and Terry Gard dance together, he plays the piano and sings to her. That whole uh, segment is lit again like a fantasy. It's it's lit in these 
really bright and uh, that spreading rich colors. The whole thing is a fantasy. Their relationship is a fantasy. I think for me, the the unifying aesthetic is mostly this is what's real and this was what is not real. And mm. what is real ends up being more important to the characters. In the final shots, we go to a very fantasy-esque, uh, very, very brightly colored lighting. I think because they're creating their own fantasy of this relationship, which we can all see is kind of terrible. And, and they can't. <laughs> they're living in the fantasy. They're living in the Vegas dream. I like what you point out about the interior spaces because I, I I did want to discuss the way that their their house is filmed, especially in those opening scenes. And it, like, I mean, obviously the camera is not still for <laughs> most of this film, but the uh, camera feels more, like much more restless in that space. And you know, we have those. It's not unique to this film, but I am a sucker for it every time where the uh, different characters are like moving in and out of rooms and never coming into contact with each other, and the camera is kind of shifting. Uh, around the hallway um, and obviously it's to sort of evoke their their disconnect or whatever you know but it's just it's it's a neat trick you know but it also does give that feeling of restlessness to their house and then like a few scenes later we have them making love attempting to make love making something approximating love and you know and in, in their home and hank is like you know, trying to make it nice while she goes upstairs to put in her diaphragm, you know, like he's putting a, a little uh, fabric over the lamp and, you know, cleaning up a little bit. And it feels very much like a futile attempt to make this space, this kind of drab, uninspiring space more magical, more fantasy. And then at the end of the film, we get that achieved in a, I guess, more genuine way, but maybe not given these characters and their relationship. Yeah, I really wanted to, to go back to that detail of the lamp because it really feels like by pulling her, her negligee over it, he is trying to create like light, like coming through colored fabric. And he's trying to create like the kind of lighting that he sees out in the world all the time and the kind of lighting we see in movies all the time, frankly, when, when somebody's trying to gauze up a sex scene and he fails miserably and he gives up just after a few seconds. Everything that he does uh, in in an effort to kind of create a more magical setting doesn't really work. And he rapidly gives up. And we, we see again just kind of the cynicism and laziness that kind of defines him. Conceptually, I, I love that opening scene. I love the idea of like this musical set in, um, with this fractious couple and like this sort of uh, uh, rundown home as a sort of contrast to what you expect from a musical. Uh, the fact that it's a very, you know, the songs and the sequence sorts their difficulties. I and mean, like with so much of those movies, the ideas are so strong and the style is so striking. And yet the execution just feels so, so off, and it's it's hard to blame the cast. I mean, I think I think Frederick Forrest, you know, I think he plays the part well. It's just, it's just a very unlikable part. I mean, he's he's a very good actor, but but I think it's really fortunate that the rest of the cast is filled out by who is who's being cast and and then like you know no scene with Lenny Kazana is, is ever boring <laughs> and you know that that character was 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 made for her maybe possibly literally written for her given that they they uh that he and she and she and Coppola went to went to college together and they they made they perform musicals together in in college so this <laughs> is this is like a homecoming for her in, in a way but at the same time you really run into problems where you know who's more charismatic than Raul Julia 
but the the character is just not there. And like, you know, there's no reason that she should go with Hank instead of Ray at the end of the film, especially since Ray was really such a, such a beautifully shot and, and constructed person in this movie. You know, it's but there's nothing to Ray really either at all. I think that's that to me is the fatal flaw of this film is, is these these. You know, it's hard to evoke high emotions when the characters are so paper thin. I love the fact that you're bringing up this lamp section of the of the their interiors in their home, but I I feel like there are long scenes in, in at the beginning of the movie where you have some kind of crazy orange light and it's like mm-hmm. a bedroom, right? Or even even at the climax of the film when they're in the a- airport and it's like this green kind of um, you know trembling vertigo color going on. In other words, the real quote unquote real sections of the movie are also bathed in the fantasy light. And I think this is what I meant by aesthetic is like, I wish that there was more of a disparity between those, Mm. those two modes. Like I think about something like pennies from heaven. I don't know if you guys have, have seen that film, but that's a film that, that toggles between the kind of depression era realities of people who are very poor and suffering and, and filled with like mean, vicious emotions. And then these musical numbers that puncture into fantasy. Like I feel like that's making more, more of a point. I actually, isn't that film the also 1982? Uh, 81, I think. 81. Yeah, but around the same time, for sure. Around the same time. So I bet you there was some kind of point. I bet you that was part of the discussion with this. I should have read more reviews because I know that um, that's a film that kind of also uses cinematography to make this kind of disparity function. I I do wish that there was more delineation there. I think to some degree... Maybe it wasn't conscious, but I feel like the movie is kind of meant to be from Hank's point of view. I feel like the lighting kind of reflects his mindset to some degree. I feel like the music that appears to be talking to him and not really particularly talking to Franny is is kind of indicative. I think the amount of time we spend in his presence and well, like on his face compared to how much time we spend with Franny and how much we know about her feels indicative. And I don't know if that's because Coppola identified with him more. And and that's what his big blind spot in this film was in thinking that that audiences would also think that Hank's interiority was important and that what he wanted was important, as opposed to him just kind of being a, a big spongy blocker on a lot of the emotions of this film. But that said, I want to push back just a little on the idea that um, that Ray is a nothing character. There's not a ton to him. You know, he's not a, a very heavily thought through character, but he's a romantic. He's somebody with enough pride and integrity that he torpedoes a job in order to flirt with a woman because he's decided that he wants to be with this woman. He apparently isn't lying. He isn't a blowhard when he says that he up and travels and he's been around the world whenever he likes. He has things in common with Franny. He's interested in the same goals that she's interested in. He wants to help break her out of her her shell and kind of the veneer of helplessness that's descended on her in spending so much time with Hank, who doesn't want to go anywhere and doesn't believe in anything. So, you know, he may be a, a wish fulfillment character, but I feel like there is more to him than there is to Layla, who is ends up being kind of uh, Hank's moment away from the relationship, his fantasy woman, who we really know nothing about. She's apparently in a circus, question mark, uh, with some people who might be her family, also question mark. 
And then she has a falling out, but it's unclear as to to what's going on. She there. says her it's, father locked her in uh, in her room for two hours. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like, I actually laughed at that part of the film because he had no follow up questions. I actually said out loud, yeah. "No follow up <laughs> questions, <laughs> no no sympathy, no interest." Like there's there's never a moment I think where we feel like Hank cares about her as a person. And I think that she senses that. And I, I think that that's a, a tiny tragedy in the movie is her awareness that he sees her as a fantasy in a way that that sort of makes sense. You know, this surprisingly beautiful woman picks him out of a, a crowd of people. And almost the first thing she says to him is, you know, let's basically let's run away together. Not in those words, but she wants to be with him. And I don't think that he experiences it as anything other than just kind of a a fantasy come true. She doesn't demand anything of him. She doesn't really tell him anything. She, in another movie, I have an oppressive man who's pinning me down and I can't go forward with my life and I'm willing to sleep with you, very ordinary man, would be the start to a giant noir, like mystery thriller kind of thing. And here it's just like, she warns him outright, like, I'm I'm here and you don't care. I'll go away. And he's kind of like, yeah, that's true. And then she does. And that's all there is to it. She literally just evaporates out of the film. <laughs> Which, yeah. again, and I, I think, think is, it was it was an yeah. It was an era when you could have this sort of like gorgeous, mysterious circus performer be this sort of object of fixation for these unworthy men. If you think about movies like Wings of Desire or, uh, mm. you know, Vendors, actually, there's a there is a Vin Vendors connection, I think, with with One from the Heart and Paris, Texas also, which has a lot of the same cast uh, and, and was shot around the same time. Right. But I feel like there's that's almost kind of a trope of this sort of this is this is the moment when Coppola is almost like shifting over to this is good. I hope this doesn't sound too inflammatory, but I watch it and it feels a little like like dirty old man cinema. Yeah. Like it feels like I never, ever thought this about Coppola or any of the movie brats in the 70s and, and during their heyday, in those movies. But I really do. I mean, in the first 20 minutes of One from the Heart, there's four shots of nudity. Yeah. I mean, it's just, this is, he's working out something or some, some kind of a personal situation on screen in his airstream, whatever. We don't need to therapize the film, but this is definitely some kind of an example of, I don't know. I mean, Fellini obviously is a big, you know, director for a lot of these guys and, and a lot of that circus, the attractive, but, you know, removed, unattainable, gorgeous circus performer trope. Um, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't work in the, in the artificiality of this movie. There's something. I, I, I think if you want to mount a defense that's not just dirty old man, which I, I, you know, that may very well be the case, but, but it, this <laughs> seems to be another instance of, of Coppola kind of wanting to play into and play against the traditions of the classic musical at the same time where you do get like this, this sort of artificiality, but the sort of a grungy setting. And you do, you know, you're this fairly, fairly earthy depiction of, of a love affair down to mediocre sex, I guess, or at least nothing particularly that spectacular. And, uh, you know, some of the nudity is, just kind of 
you know, I, I don't mean this as, yeah, exactly. I <laughs> right. don't mean this as a, any way a comment on Terry Gar's appearance, but it's it just sort of like everyday course of life. You know, I'm walking to the bathroom. I'm not going to bother putting my clothes on kind of neat day too. So I don't know. Uh, you know, I think there is a little bit of that. I, with, with Kensky, obviously the camera loves looking at her, uh, and the man behind the camera seems to as well, but you know. <laughs> the, the toplessness there felt more gratuitous to me. It, it honestly just felt like, well, we've got another attractive woman here. We've, we've got to get her out of her top. And, and we don't actually get full toplessness with Lainey Kazan, but boy, do we get close uh, given what she's wearing. <laughs> mm-hmm. In the movie's defense, I will say that it, the equality in amount of skin is reasonably close. We never get full frontal female nudity uh, and we don't get full frontal male nudity, but we do spend a lot of time on uh, Ryle Julia's rippling torso. Yeah. Uh, we see his ass. And a butt cheek. Yeah, when he, yeah. when he's climbing out of bed. <laughs> There's a butt you know, cheek. And it's... Yeah. it's and the raw sex appeal of, of, of curly-haired Harry Dean Stanton, too. You can't, cannot <laughs> right. underestimate yes. that. It's not that you can, you know, entirely just uh, tot these things up on a scoreboard and make them equal because there's so much, you know, loaded uh, quality to on-screen nudity and particularly to the camera leering over women's bodies in, in movies directed by men. But I did notice that there's a lot of eye candy for women in this movie and just kind of an overall sense of, well, we're probably looking at everybody's bodies because we're thinking a great deal about those bodies and all of them can do with each other. So like that aspect of it, until Kinski got topless, it honestly didn't bug me. And that was just kind of the one that was like, okay, you couldn't let it go like for one woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to kind of circle back to uh, Ray and Layla being maybe not so fully drawn characters, it did strike me that they are both their characters are both performers in in some way. Mm. And, you know, performers by nature are kind of giving their audience what they want. <laughs> and so in in these relationships, they are kind of objects of fulfillment for Franny and Hank. You know, I don't know if it was intentional. Obviously in Vegas, a lot of people like work in a, a performance capacity and this will probably come up as a theme again next week when we talk about Annette, but it did uh, kind of strike me as as notable about those two characters. Yeah, that's a really good observation. It does feel like they just kind of sell, sail in to give everybody a little temptation and then kind of sail out on the wind. I mean, they they don't quite feel like characters because they do kind of feel like fantasies, which actually brings me to one of the things that just sort of bothers me about the whole conceit. Like reading up on this film afterward, I, I suddenly come to understand that this is all meant to take place on like over the course of basically two nights. I find that so hard to believe. It it doesn't feel like that. It feels like a, a rent style thing where we're checking in on them over the course of a year. There's just so much happens. And there's there's so much incident, the encounters and departures and seeing each other in crowds and not seeing each other in, in crowds. And I understand that it's all kind of built around this like 4th of July celebration holiday, but it still never felt to me like I just I never had a sense of of concrete time. I never had a sense of time passing in a, a linear or meaningful way, which may just be part of the fantasy conceit of the, mov- the movie as well. But when I read it, I said, what, really? It just it does not feel like a, a, a blurred lost weekend. So I really want to I mean, I want to talk about how this falls in the context of Coppola's career, which I think is interesting in a couple of different ways. I mean, there was there is is there another hot streak quite like 
Godfather One conversation, Godfather Two apocalypse now. I mean, that is, you know, four in a row and not just, just four in a row, like four, four all timers. And in some way, there's no way to go but down. But, you know, it, it's such a weird thing to sandwich this in between. Look at this as a film that falls between apocalypse now and the outsiders. And also I went back and watched, um, I'd never seen the rain people before. So I wanted to watch that, uh, which I think is, it's a really interesting film. But is in some ways just the exact opposite of this in that it's so all these like, you know, found locations uh, where it feels like there's like no set dressing whatsoever. This is long sequence set at this disgusting roadside zoo that I, I'm sure it's just something that Coppola or, or whoever connected to the film just found and, and filmed at. It's such a and, and that is, you know, if you go back, that is, you know, 68, 69. It's not so many years removed away from from this movie. It's, it's a long way from from there to here is what I'm saying. And then, you know. What comes next is 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 a uh, is crazy. I mean, it, it is. I like a lot of these films a lot of the eighties and going into the nineties because I do really, especially like like Dracula. But it is a hmm. a strange next chapter. So let's just talk about this in uh, the Coppola of it all yeah. and where where you see this falling in his his career. It's interesting because this is uh, this is a film that I think he's developing when he turns forty. Mm. Um, Apocalypse Now comes out and he is, and I think he turns 40 in 1979. If I have my math right, I'm pretty sure I do. And I, yep, that's I, right. and, and I feel like that, that this film is basically screams in a neon sign midlife crisis. It, it, it's, it is a, a turning 40 kind of film. And also we haven't touched on this yet, but there's a whole revolution going on right now on television with MTV and the idea that that young people are seeing basically musicals every day when they're watching videos. They're watching and and really sophisticated short films and videos. I feel like paradoxically, the like, the grammar and the language of musicals is becoming more visible than maybe it has been in a long time because we're seeing many musicals. Uh, so I don't even know if musicals are, are quite going away during the early 80s, but I do watch one from the heart and I feel like it's accomplished attempt to try to still seem young. He's made these grand statements and they are grand statements in, in the seventies. And now he's not only shifting to what he thought was going to be a more financially quick and less, you know, taxing project than Apocalypse Now, but also something that was going to seem younger. And it was almost going to be like MTV, but with sex, like with nudity and something that was a little edgier. He was going to make this movie and it's going to turn out that he, he isn't quite up. I mean, some of those, early MTV videos were so gorgeous and so stylish. And I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, Julian Temple and, and, and Godfrey and Cream, like all these early videos that were really making an impression on, on viewers. And I think Coppola with his whole electronic cinema was trying to seem younger. I don't know if you guys got, got that whiff of I've turned 40 and I need to make something that suddenly seems younger again. No, it, it totally makes sense. Yeah, I can to certainly see yeah. it. Yeah, I didn't I, d- I didn't have the context to make that read myself, but I definitely buy it. And and him also in a way kind of failing at that too. I mean, again, I I'm I'm here and I'm happy to be a guest and it's not that I hate your fi- the film that has been chosen, but I do I do watch it and I feel like this is uh the the equivalent for me would be something like Fellini's City of Women, which is a a film from 1980 where he's doing a lot of this the tactics and and um 
formal strategies that he would do in the 60s and 70s to great effect. But suddenly it seems like you've aged yourself out of that mode of telling stories or it doesn't quite it doesn't work in the same way. I don't feel like Coppola fully came into focus for me as a filmmaker until 2007 when he made Youth Without Youth. I'd seen a lot of his movies at that point, but they just they didn't necessarily cohere into a, a vision or a style for me because they're they're relatively diverse in in tone. I mean, like looking at Patton and the Godfather versus something like Peggy Sue Got Married, uh, it just it feels very different to me. Looking at Apocalypse Now is the same person who made Bram Stoker's Dracula is just really kind of hard for me to to comprehend. You know, Captain EO tries to pull them all together into one unified tapestry, but it, it doesn't fully <laughs> fall through, I think. I wasn't really expecting a Captain EO reference. In <laughs> yes. but, but go on. I was waiting for it, actually. <laughs> that may have actually been my first Coppola, just saying. I, you know, for all right. I know, it was mine too, because, uh, you know, I was a little kid. I went to Disney World. It was, or Disneyland. I don't know, remember. I don't know which one it was, but I, I definitely didn't think to myself, hmm, the auteur of uh, the Godfather series is uh, definitely making a statement here with Michael Jackson and these little, little puppets. <laughs> That's his baby. I did not mean to derail us into Captain EO land, although it is kind of a fascinating artifact. That said, <laughs> Youth Without Youth is just such a a baffling and opaque mystery. Uh, and so I had to read up on it. And I I read the novella that it's based on. And I read a lot of interviews with Coppola, like trying to understand what he was trying to communicate with it. And it just became very, very clear to me that he was experiencing a different movie inside his head than we were necessarily seeing on screen. He was making this heady, philosophical, complicated, symbolic statement that existed for him in his head. But what we saw on screen was a series of of images and events that are very difficult to make cohere if you don't have that image. And I look back on his work and I see a lot of that kind of thing. I, I feel like some of his biggest successes are movies where a lot of the interiority is is out on the screen. You know, the the things that go on in in the, the first Godfather are about people expressing themselves through violence, expressing things that they can't express through, like they can't bring their interiority out into the open because it's just not culturally done. So they have to express all of these things they're feeling through action on each other. And I think that that mode of cinema maybe works for him better than something like Dracula. I personally think Dracula is just a, an unmitigated disaster with horrific acting and, and laughable transitions and ridiculous imagery. But I think he was so caught up in the symbolism of it that he wasn't necessarily seeing what other people would see put on screen. I think it's probably also the film that's closest to one from the heart in some strange ways where it is so artificial and it is so so movies with a capital M, you know, pay attention to the form itself kind of thing. I never actually really thought about that till just now. But, but you yeah. know, but it, it also it, goes back to Keith, what you were saying before in the very intro about uh, about how Coppola screened one from the heart uh, at Radio City and was just boggled and mystified that people could misunderstand it so thoroughly, a film mm -hmm. that, he, that he loved. There is a kind of detachment, right, between what he sees maybe in his head as an artist uh, and his feeling and then what he's actually presenting to us externally. Um, and that's uh, there's actually an anecdote like that in, in Final Cut, which is about Heaven's Gate, where where Chimino's like, why, why, 
why are people leaving? Why are they not drinking their champagne? And, and the publicist is like, because they hate the film, Michael. You know, it's like, it's like, like someone has to sort of bring the, bring the hammer and say what, what, and, and I think that one from the heart is marked by, it's marked by that idea of someone who's so confident and so inside their own artistic interiority and, you know, crawled so deeply up their own, you know, I'm going to be polite here, their own intent that, uh, that they, that the, the, they're unaware of how, the images are working on the audience and, you know, becoming detached from that is really a problem for a filmmaker. It's, it, there are only a few examples of, of the directors who do become detached from it, regaining it and saying, no, 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 I have to speak more simply, you know, you're, you're Scorsese and you have to return to something that's a little more focused on the audience. You know, maybe it's Goodfellas or something, but it's rare that they get it back. Yeah, I mean, I think it is very, very common for artists to have a different experience of their art in their head yeah. than what somebody who doesn't have that context experiences. I'm, I'm definitely not calling him out as, uh, the, the only person that's experienced this, right. but it is something that you see with creators that are, that are that smart, that are that intellectualized and that philosophical and who feel like they're building. I, I see this actually with, uh, Lena Wachowski, maybe more than anybody else I've, I've ever seen films by. Like the Wachowski, uh, sisters films are gorgeous, but they have a real problem with the, the acting being kind of clumsy and forced and artificial and with the stories not connecting one thing to another in satisfying ways. And if you listen to what Lana Wachowski talk about the intent of these movies, she'll get into like deconstruction theory and, and Kant and like all of these extremely heady conceptual things that she feels she's putting on screen. Your average person isn't actually seeing. Your average person is seeing uh, Keanu flying through the air in, in cool ass sunglasses. So I think with, with really, really intelligent directors, there can be just sort of a problem of disconnect between here is the meaning of it all that gives it meaning and here's what's on the screen which is a lot of uh pretty lights and women taking off their tops i think i kind of like this movie in the same way i like jupiter ascending where, where i don't i don't think it works but i also kind of love it you know yeah. <laughs> uh, it's 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 it's, it's sort of like these wounded these wounded children that that, that I'm, I'm fond of sometimes well, i mean everybody everybody in our business i think kind of secretly loves a an over ambitious failure, uh, a giant mess of a movie that's trying to do all the things so much more than a Beverly Hills Chihuahua, where, you know, the point is it's a dog and it talks and that's funny. <laughs> but here we Touch are laughing. <laughs> I, the other thing just to, to say about Coppola before we wrap is I, I think he may have a secret romantic heart that shows up in some of his films. I mean, I I think uh, you know, Rumblefish and the Outsiders, like adapting yeah. those books is is the act of a romantic, the act of of something of an idealist. And I think in a way those movies are very romanticizing about uh, kids on the street effectively. But I, I think Dracula is meant to be a very romanticized and and lush and to some degree erotic movie in a way. And I I just don't think it connects with the audiences in the way that he's thinking of it. 
I think you might, is- it might, it might be an, an essential quality for a director who wants to make a musical to be romantic, mm-hmm. or at least to make it the kind of musical that satisfies us in a traditional way. Can I just say, unrelated to everything we've said, just uh, RIP to Alan Garfield also. He, Alan Garfield, do you guys remember him? He's the, he's the restaurant owner in this movie. Oh, wow. Oh, oh, right. And he was also in the conversation. Chabier. <laughs> right, exactly, and he's he uh, he died last April of COVID nineteen. Oh, so so uh, mm. not to be a bummer, but uh, was just thinking about him. I love that character in the conversation that he plays. He plays a Bernie, the rival bugger. Oh yeah, yeah, right. A great scene. Yeah, yeah. I guess to wrap up a little bit, I I have to ask: Would we all like this movie significantly better if it ended four minutes earlier? because <laughs> mm. I, I mean I, 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 yeah, there, there was a moment when uh hank is sitting alone in in the green lighting of of his house and visibly coming to terms with reality like it for the very first time he seems yeah. to actually be understanding that that franny has left him that he doesn't get to get her back uh just by yelling at her or literally like stealing her naked out of her lover's bed and forcing her back to the house like he he doesn't get to have what he wants because she's another person and then we get the my fair lady ending where she says nope nope you were right all along like it doesn't matter (laughs) what you did to me or how i felt about it like i'm i came back and again there's a romanticism to it but it just feels so at odds with everything else we saw in the film i really did think just because we were down to like four minutes and change in the movie and and he was alone i i was like is this is this just like a really daring inversion of what we expect out of this kind of uh sentimental story mm-hmm. are we actually going to go there and i got really excited i was like exact this is same. these yes. are the stakes i'm feeling for the first oh okay never mind i know I, and I, I, not to, and I'm not going to spoil this for you, but there is a movie that just played a can by Sean Baker called Red Rocket that has the ending that you're wanting for this movie in it. And I'm not, again, I, I'm not going to ruin it for anyone. I'm not going to allude to it or describe it, but I will say that there was, I was actually watching one from the heart. Uh, this was a return for me and I forgot how it ended. And then I was like, Oh, right. Exactly. <laughs> she, but, but imagine if, imagine if Coppola, and I know I'm revising his intent here, but imagine if he made it clear to us that this was still part of Frederick Forrest's mm. fantasy and that this, he was cleaning up the house and he was, he really made a mess of things and his, his whole life is ruined. And this is, if Coppola had found a way to maybe cut back to him or make it clear that this was still, within his mind that it was some kind of a fantasy, I would have so much more respect for the film. Yeah. But it doesn't, it doesn't own that. Yeah. That I, would, I think it really means it to be real. Yeah. I, Tasha, when you asked your question uh, about if this would work, if it ended four minutes earlier, I think I could even maybe go like a little later in, and have it end when th- with the, the plane flying overhead and him getting rained on in, in his convertible and driving off like a total sad sack. That also would have worked for me as an ending. But, you know, I think, uh, Josh, what you're suggesting is uh, as far as like leaning into it as a, as a fantasy would probably be even better. Yeah, I think a better film would have understood that would be the ending it needed. But but uh, you know, I think there there is the romantic streak that that would prevent him from doing that. Yep. Didn't you guys just talk about some similar ideas with um, the ending of White Lotus? 
and the idea of <laughs> Alexandra Daddario's character and the choice I that she makes. That would be our, our on our Patreon, which if you're not subscribed, you hey, should nice, thanks for the, thanks for letting us plug the Patreon <laughs> yeah. in, in, our, okay. in organic fashion. <laughs> All right, okay. With that, we should probably wind down discussion. There'll be lots more one from the heart talk next week when we talk about Annette. Uh, we'll be right back after a short break. Now it's time for feedback, where we answer any questions or respond to any comments about our episodes or anything else in the world of film. Our discussion of Excalibur had some listeners thinking about music. Genevieve, can you share one of those letters? Ed in Virginia writes, While my thoughts on the music in Excalibur are mostly rooted in Scott's beloved extra textuals, I couldn't help but think about the use of Wagner and Orff on the soundtrack and the connection that both had to Nazism, either in contributing to their aesthetics of the regime in the case of the former, or being an indirect product of the regime in the case of the latter. Indeed, in a lot of YouTube critiques of the Nazis that I consume, Wagner is essentially soundtrack shorthand for the topic being discussed, and that's not even counting such usages about soundtracking the genocidal David and Alien Covenant, or how Ride of the Valkyries will always be with us, usually denoting destruction. I do not think that this was Borman's intent in the slightest, but it couldn't help but distract me. The discussion on whether or not one can separate art from the artist is well-worn, but I think this is something different. The ways that art has been used in other contexts impacting your reaction to another piece of art that uses it. At the risk of provoking Scott's wrath, are there instances where extra textuals like this actively pull you out of the film? I mean, to bed Scott's not here to, to rail against this letter, but <laughs> somewhere he's looking up from his uh, his birthday dinner and shaking his head. I mean, for me, there's there is definitely one of the things that most pulls me out of a film extra textually is just the knowledge of kind of commercialism it's it's less about uh was this music composed by nazis and more about was this music chosen because like we we feel it'll resonate with today's youth it'll it'll look good on the soundtrack <laughs> it's it's hard to get away from the the long long history of uh say for instance hallelujah being used on on soundtracks uh or to some degree all-star uh when when that song was everywhere there are certain songs that people seem to think like, oh, it evokes an era, like it'll take it take us back to this era or, uh, oh, it evokes a mood. It'll it'll immediately get us to this mood. But those songs have been overused or they're just in the zeitgeist right now. And, and I know how much they're going to date the film when they're not being pulled, you know, directly from what used to be the radio charts. I guess today it'd be the the Spotify charts or the iTunes sales charts. I don't know. But yeah, for me, music can can be pretty distracting and annoying even when I feel it's being used to sell me on either the soundtrack or on a particular artist. It's it's kind of as distracting as the new product placement where for instance, Free Guy, uh, Taika Waititi and another character yell about KFC at each other back and forth repeatedly. And it's just it's a moment of you know that somebody got paid for this. You you know that it's not remotely an organic part of the story. It's just a moment that we had to figure out how to make sure people would walk out of this movie thinking, I want to go play Fortnite and eat some KFC. Yeah, I, I find myself thinking about, you know, weirdly the opposite moments in which things that had were seemingly owned by other projects actually work 
in a new context, like the opening of Jackie Brown, which uses the theme song to cross 110th Street. And the song from Popeye, speaking, you know, looping back to Popeye, the song from Popeye that's used so, so, so well in, um, a punch drunk love. Uh, you know, the, why, why does this work? It, it really shouldn't. I mean, and, you know, th- those, those were things created for very specific use. And yet I, I, I like the new context there, which they're uh, found, you know, found it. So maybe it's just there's no hard and fast rules about that sort of thing. I mean, does it always work for you? I, I guess no, we're, no. we're going to get to a net eventually, <laughs> but I, I found that the use of a, a snippet of Tom Lehrer's National Brotherhood Week out of nowhere really took me out of the movie for a second because I wasn't I wasn't sure in context, given that it's presented by a character on the stage during his comedy show. Is he meant to be quoting or is he meant to be like coming up with this off the cuff as he does so much of his stuff? Is this meant to be clever? Does this song work when he's singing one song, one one verse of it and you're not singing the the chorus and you don't get the irony at all? And it just seems like. Uh, overt racism like what is this snippet of this song that's being borrowed from something else like what is it trying to communicate here well this brought to mind to me uh and and sorry to to bring it us down <laughs> but i mean i think uh we're uh, gonna keep talking about uh shitty men uh, in, in the next episode <laughs> but you know um when similar to uh, the uh, Nazism uh, connection that Ed is talking about here. Uh, You know, uh, uh, when you hear music by an artist that you, uh, in in the interim between the movie coming out and watching it, you have learned is kind of terrible. The the one that sticks out in my mind right now is Taika Waititi's Boy, which is a film that I, I love a lot, but also turns on a, a obsession with Michael Jackson. And it is set during the thriller era, you know, so that like, it makes sense. But it's also a story about a young boy <laughs> obsessed with Michael Jackson and bonding with his father figure over that. And it's like, it doesn't make the movie any less enjoyable for me, but it does give me that moment of like, <laughs> ee, like I'm, I'm pulling at my collar a little, you know? So that's going to keep happening, <laughs> I think. See, I told you I mean, I'd bring I can, it down. I can bring it down further. <laughs> like there, there is, there is just, no. there is just more and more of this, uh, the kind of thing that does happen in terms of like, how do you watch a Kevin Spacey movie now? You know, how, how, mm-hmm. how do you watch a movie oh, yeah. like with a, with a Chris Brown song on the soundtrack? Like, how do you, how do you watch a movie produced by Harvey Weinstein? R. Kelly, Believe I Can Fly. I mean, Space Jam has a lot bigger problems than that, but that song right Sorry. in the middle of it. <laughs> Even the the artists that we love who use music the most, you know, fluidly, like say someone like a Martin Scorsese, can pull sources that are just, that are so discordant sometimes. And you're like, wow. Like I think about when Casino, in Casino, when he's using George Delarue's music from Contempt, and and you're like, how does this gorgeous music that plays so beautifully and is about, um, you know, it's a, this romantic disconnection? Uh, I mean, maybe you're trying to apply it to this relationship with with Joe Pesci and, and Robert De Niro, but it just it just oh, it's such a an unearned steal. Like it just doesn't make sense. Moving on, uh, we paired Excalibur with the Green Knight, but there's green all over both movies. This had one of our listeners running with an idea that Genevieve threw out. Tasha, can you share that letter? 
Sure. Uh, JP writes, I really responded to Genevieve using green as a descriptor for Excalibur. There are some films I enjoy specifically because of their green slash earthy slash windy aesthetics. Even the ones I don't necessarily think are good, such as The Village, which is so lushly autumnal. I recently rewatched First Reformed and I really felt the environmental despair this time around. With climate change and heat waves more catastrophic than ever, what are some other films with earthy aesthetics that you get a comforting green mileage out of? I was excited to get this letter because I actually just rewatched a film that like this brings to mind perfectly for me. And it's also one of my favorite films, uh, which is uh, Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice from 2005. Um, And obviously, there are many filmed Pride and Prejudices out there. And, you know, the Austinites love to argue about which one is superior. And I think maybe Wright's would not automatically be most people's uh, for first choice for the best part behind prejudice but i love it because it does have this green aesthetic and it really leans into the outdoors uh, of uh and, and their their romance kind of flourishes in outdoor spaces which especially in the context of an austin story which is you know typically thought of thought of as so like buttoned up and drawing room ballroom based you know and the film does have scenes indoors obviously but those you know the the, the biggest moments that you know of, of the film where they come together spoiler alert uh, you know they, they, they get together and it, like it happens at sunrise in a field and it's beautiful and i just i love that film i revisit it every few years i just found this question so depressing <laughs> all it made me think of was was uh soylent green which i, I i'm gonna drop a, a, the other spoiler for soylent green in this movie or or at least a, a plot detail which which is uh um, you know, uh, one thing in this film is there's, there's voluntary suicides, which is an option exercised by uh, the character played by Edward G. Robinson in, in his final role. And it kind of walks you through the quote unquote beautiful suicide that, that you're allowed, which is, you know, you listen to classical music and watch scenes of nature and all these <laughs> beautiful <laughs> images of the earth that just no longer <laughs> exist. So that's all I thought of when I got this question. So I, I, uh, I don't have an answer beyond that other than soil and green. It's a pretty good movie, even if you do know the, the big secret. I, I, I want to hear who follows up Pride and Prejudice and Soylent Green. What comes What comes after? <laughs> I'm going to take yeah. a real sharp left turn. Uh, for me, it's it's Studio Ghibli movies. Uh, oh. My Neighbor Tortoro, in particular, just the the delving deeper and deeper into into the woods and into these lush green spaces, and Spirited Away uh, at the beginning, the lush green grassy fields. Studio Ghibli movies are just uh, packed with with green grasses it's uh, an ongoing obsession that goes back to definitely back to castle in the sky and Hayao Miyazaki has a, a real thing about environmentalism and and feeling that the earth is going to outlast us because we're going to kill ourselves off and that that's going to be a good thing you know because then then there can be verdant fields of grasses again without pollution and without radiation and without without trash but it really seems like Ghibli has made a a career out of portraying the natural world in the greenest and, and luscious and most inviting and, and voluptuous way possible. The other thing that immediately leapt to mind for me was just Terrence Malick, uh, particularly The New World and Days of Heaven and uh, to a, a pretty strong degree, A Hidden Life. You know, all of the stuff uh, taking place around the, the main character's village. It's just really heavily steeped in nature. The New World as well just kind of has a, a feeling of, I don't remember a whole lot about that movie that isn't just people moving through nature 
speaking in voiceover uh, about the hushed wonder of it all. His movies are just so obsessed with mankind's interaction with uh, with the natural world and how much mankind is dwarfed by the natural world. I was going to mention Malik. I love what you said about him and and this idea that his uh, his conception of the natural world is almost like commenting on the folly of humankind. Like we're off fighting wars in the thin red line, or t- twirling on a lawn, or cheating on Sam Shepard, or whatever we're doing in his film. <laughs> but but uh, but uh, the the we see the wind going through the trees, or we see insects, or different animals, and it's almost like the serene, eternal quality of nature that goes on. The filmmaker also that actually plays off Malik and. Uh, Miyazaki that I was going to mention is um, a Thai filmmaker named Abishapong Wirsetakul. He's oh, he, good job. Oh, Bravo. thank you. His his uh, his his fans let him call him Joe. He's actually uh, Chicago educated. Went to the School of the Art Institute, and he is he's a filmmaker who has an incredible idea of the natural world in his films. There's always these jungles mysterious places that have a real sense of playfulness to them spirits live in them like Miyazaki films and ghosts and monkeys and and if if you and and another thing about about his films is that they're unusually accessible in the sense that you're not doing a lot of reading there are it's not a lot of dialogue there's not a lot of subtitles and they're all really rooted in this idea of the natural world as a counterpoint to urban spaces and so if if you haven't seen a, a we are set the cool film the three that would be good to start with would uh well there's a film called blissfully yours and then the, uh, the a film called tropical malady which i think is the first one i saw and then there's a film called uncle boon me who can recall his past lives which is um just you should see it for that title alone but they're those are wonderful films that have a great conception of nature and they help me get through the pandemic I'm so mad Scott isn't here, uh, both because he loves those movies so much and because he uh, Tropical Malady is is one of our biggest pain points. That's one of the movies we've argued about most over the years. Oh, and right. how delightful it would be to get to see him uh, gloat at having everything that he's said about that film uh, validated. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that he pronounces that director's name as well as I do as well. I'm sure. <laughs> well, we'll close the the mailbag for, for this week, but we do always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730, and we do like those, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll keep the heartache and the songs coming, but add menace and puppetry when we discuss Annette. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us at Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. And follow us on Twitter at, at NextPicturePod so you always know when a new episode drops. Until then, if you're a lovelorn singer or trapeze artist, just stay away from Terry Gar and Frederick Forrest. They'll only break your heart. Is there 